It is a joy to be here and uh, have the joy and the privilege and the responsibility of unfolding God's word for you. And in order to do that faithfully, I'm going to need some help. And so would you join in praying with and for me as we go to the Lord? Father, I come in the name of Christ Jesus through the power of your Holy Spirit. I ask that your word this morning would be rich and true, that it would bring life, it would revive souls, it would refresh the weary, it would draw near the wayward, it would conflict and convict the comfortable. And those that are walking faithfully, it would encourage them to do all the more. Father, keep me faithful to your word and may Christ be the one who is supreme. May we see that he is sufficient for all things. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So I want to give you a word to start this morning. It's a word of opposite of a holiday that we have coming up where we feast a lot. The word I want to give you is famine. And right now in your mind's eye, I want you to think of famine. Draw that picture in your mind. You have a picture of famine. Maybe your mind's eye is filled with hard-packed soil, dust and brown and barren, hot summer's day pouring down on a dry land. Or maybe it's a picture of malnourished people, their bones clearly visible through their paper-thin skin. Chances are you probably did not think of your neighborhood or your workplace. Chances are you probably did not think of the person sitting on your left or on your right. But what if I told you that people in this room and in this community were impacted by a famine? Yes, people in this room, I believe, people in this community are lacking the vital nutrients required to live. If you've guessed it, I'm not talking about food for the stomach, but food for the soul. Though we live in the land of plenty, make no mistake about it, there is a famine among us. People are starved, not for food. People are starved for glory. And not just any glory, but the glory of God. Because our created purpose is to know God, praise God, and enjoy God and His glory. But there's a famine. And I quote, We were made to know and treasure the glory of God above all things. And we were, when we trade that treasure for images, everything is disordered. The sun of God's glory was made to shine at the center of the solar system of our soul. And when it does, all the planets of life are held in their proper orbit. But when the sun is displaced, everything flies apart. The healing and the filling of the soul begins by restoring the, glo the glory of God to its all-flaming, all-attracting place at the center. We are starved for the glory of God, not self. End quote. And so I have a very simple goal this morning. I want to feed you a meal for your soul. I want to unfold before you the banquet feast of God's word and encourage you to eat and eat and stuff yourselves with the excellencies of Christ Jesus. I want you to taste the sweetness of Christ and be satisfied in him. 
not just content with the idea that Christ is sweet, like you have the idea honey is sweet by looking at the jar. No, I want you to leave this place understanding the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ and his sweetness just like you do when the sweetness of honey drops upon your lips. That's my goal for you this morning. So the text we're going to look at this morning is about feeding on Christ, his supremacy and his sufficiency. I want to tell you up front, you're not going to walk away from here with a list of things to do. But I want want you to walk away knowing in your head that Christ is supreme and feeling in the depths of your heart that he is all sufficient. Yes, by God's grace, I want to bring us some famine relief. And to do that, we'll be looking at Colossians chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. And so Colossians is a book written by a guy named Paul. Paul started lots of churches, and he started uh, many. He didn't start this one, but he's writing them a letter. And it's a very young church, and this church is being tempted to follow false teaching. And so Paul wants to remind this young church who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what Jesus will do. He wants them to quite simply see Jesus is all supreme and all sufficient. Or to say it another way, the all supreme Lord is the all sufficient Savior. And Paul spells this out clearly for us in verses, 1 through 15, uh, verses 15 through 20 of chapter 1. And this is actually, these verses are actually an early hymn of the church. It's what they are. They extol Jesus. And so they want us to marvel not just at our redemption, but the one who actually bought our redemption. And so what I want us to do is I want to travel back to the city of Colossae, and I want to hold a microphone up to that church and join in their praise that we too might extol the excellencies of Christ. I'm going to start reading for us in verse 13 of chapter 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So he tells us we've been redeemed and now he's going to move into this hymn, this beautiful song about the redeemer himself. He, Jesus, is the invisible, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Eight times in these verses, we see the word all or everything. And so like a blinking sign that grabs your attention as you're walking down a dark street on the night. Paul is grabbing your attention to tell you there is nothing outside the scope of the supremacy of Jesus. Paul is highlighting for us the supremacy of Jesus over all things that we might savor the sufficiency of Jesus in all things. And so verses 15 through 17, or as I might like to say, stanza one of this hymn, 
we see that Christ is Lord and King over material creation. In verses 18 through 20, or what we might call stanza two, we see that Christ is Lord and King over new or spiritual creation, the church. And so I want to spend our time looking at verses 18 through 20, stanza two of this hymn. And from these verses, I want to feed you a five-course meal. I want to feed you two courses that showcase and stuff you with the supremacy of Christ. Then I want to give you two more courses on the sufficiency of Christ. And in my family, no meal is complete without dessert. And so, yes, we are going to eat dessert too for our fifth course this morning. Course number one, Jesus is supreme because he is head of the church. Jesus is supreme because he is head of the church. Look again there at verse 18. And he, Jesus, is the head of the church. Here, the metaphor or the image of head means at least two things. First, head means Jesus is the ruler. He is supreme over the church. He is king. As we just read in verse 13, the church is filled with those people who have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. And who is king of that kingdom? Jesus is king. He is the light of the world. And so one day, the kingdom of God will be visible everywhere, in every place. But today, it's pictured through the local church. And so one of the ways that we show Jesus is king in our life is by joining with a local church that pictures the kingdom to come. And so Jesus is not just the king of Hamilton Baptist. He's the king of every true church. And so 150 years ago, about 5,000 people gathered in London as Metropolitan Church. Jesus was king of that church. Last night while we slept, there's a group of about 30 people in Botswana, Africa, that gathered as Mon Baptist Church. Jesus is king of that church. Right now, the church where I have a joy of serving as pastor, 45 miles from here, is gathering Jesus is king of that church. Right now, our brothers and sisters in Haiti are gathering, extolling their king, Jesus. And you know what the future holds? King Jesus over his church. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed the people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Jesus is the head of the body, and he is the king of the kingdom. Second, the image of head means Jesus is the source of the church's life. The church finds its purpose, her life in Christ. How long would your body live if it were severed from your head? Not very long. So it is with the church. If the church is severed from the head who is Christ, it cannot survive. And so if anything other than Christ becomes the head, a church withers and it dies. And unfortunately, I think that's happening all around us. A church's health is determined by who acts as the head. And when Christ is not the head, what begins to act as the head? Human authority, tradition, 
those things aren't the provider of life. They're not the source of life. And so if something other than Christ becomes the head of the church, it withers and dies. And so all around us, there are churches that look to something as Jesus as their head. Sure, he might be a thought to consider, a counselor to advise, but he ceased to be the head and the king who rules. And this week, as I was writing this sermon, I wanted to see if I could tell who was king of Hamilton Baptist. Never been here. Met a few of you uh, a little while ago. I know Stephen. But I wanted to see if I just went to your website, could I tell who was king of Hamilton Baptist Church? What did I find? Did it say Stephen Carn is king? No, it did not. Thank goodness. <laughs> Though we love him. Here's what I found. Who are we? Hamilton Baptist is a community of real people who share life in order to magnify and expand, magnify God and expand his kingdom. We have joined together that we may live lives of joyful submission to King Jesus. Yes. Your mission statement. I notice it's hanging right here around me. What's your mission? Exalt the name of Christ. Teach the word of Christ. Share the gospel of Christ. Help build up the church of Christ. It's about Christ. Amen. Praise God for the grace that he has shown you here. Christ seems to be your king. Let me encourage you not just to let those be the dull words on a website. Allow them by the Spirit of God to be delightful worship in your lives. And may nothing or no thing, no person other than King Jesus be your head. So the first course we have is of our feast is Jesus is supreme because he is the head of the church. Course number two, Jesus is supreme because he has conquered death and offers new life. Course number two, look at the second half of verse 18 there. He, speaking of Jesus, is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And this is clearly a reference to the resurrection of Jesus. This is what it means, at least in part, that Jesus was the first, as in chronological time, to raise from the dead. Jesus first. He is the firstborn of new creation. The one who created all things is the down payment of recreation. And so Jesus' resurrection illustrates what those who are in Christ have to look forward to, that all things will be made right Death is conquered in Christ. It will not rule forever. Death, it too, will bow to King Jesus. Because of Jesus, the enemy of death becomes the footstool to glory. Now there's some, perhaps even here, that would deny Christ rose from the grave. If that's you, I'm, I'm grateful that you're here. We are thankful that you're here to consider this with us this morning. And the Bible says, if Jesus didn't raise from the grave, we should go home and watch football. It's my paraphrase, anyway. First, it actually says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. If Christ has not been raised, your fate is futile, and you are still in your sin. So the resurrection is the hinge on which the Christian faith swings. Christianity is not rooted in our own subjective feelings or experiences. 
Christianity is not rooted in another person's unverifiable, personalized experience with God. Maybe it's a spiritual guru you're supposed to trust. That's not Christianity. Christianity is rooted in Jesus, his public death, and his public resurrection. The Christian faith is reason faith, faith grounded in a particular event in history dealing with time and space and events, things that can actually be examined. And as far as I know, this is completely unique to Christianity. Other religions, as far as I know, I'm not an expert, but I've had many of conversations. As far as I know, other religions do not make a claim that is objectively falsifiable, meaning you could prove it false through objective truth. That's not true with Christianity. Christianity, theoretically, could be proven false. If you produce the body of Jesus, we should go home because I'm wasting my time and you're wasting yours. And that comforts me. Why? Because if I'm wrong, I want to know it. I don't want to follow a lie. But here's the thing. The tomb is empty because Christ rose from the grave. And so if he rose, everything changes. To borrow some language from a guy named C.S. Lewis, if Jesus rose from the dead, everything changes. If he didn't, nothing changes. The only thing it can't be is of moderate change. Christ and his resurrection is either of all importance or of no importance. It can't just be like, yeah, he did. Uh, What's for dinner? That option is not available to us. So friend, if you're here and you're thinking about the truth of Christianity and what does it mean, let me encourage you to start with the resurrection of Christ. Examine that. Read the scriptures and say, what about this man who said he lived, died, and rose again. If that's you, come talk to me. I'd love to talk to you about that. Talk to any person you've seen up here about that. I'm sure people here at Hamilton Baptist would love to talk with you more about the resurrection of Christ. We go on in verse 18. And so Paul's telling us, yes, he was the first to rise, but he's saying more than that. He's not just the first in time. He's also the first in type. Jesus is not only the first in time, but he's the first in type. His resurrection is a demonstration of a new kind of life, eternal life. Peter says this in Acts 3. He says, Jesus is the author of life, eternal life. And so Jesus died for our sins and rose again that we might have life, life eternal. He says himself in John 11, he who believes in me will live even though he dies Because I live, you will live also. And this is the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is not about good and bad. The message of Christianity is about death and life. From the very beginning, we were were created to have life. We are created to to know and have a relationship with God, the author of life, the giver of life, the source of life. And so the moment we rebel against God, and we all do. There's nobody in here that has not rebelled against God. We, we do it in different ways. We're very creative in the way we rebel. Some of us rebel inwardly, right? And we do the things that God tells us to do, but with very selfish, impure, self-righteous motives so we can prove how good we are to God. Some of us are a bit more blatant in our rebellion and we just go for it outwardly. 
And we just rebel with our actions, our behaviors, our words. But we all rebel. And because we rebel, it's not just that we've done something bad. It's that we've done something deserving of death. Sin is like sawing off the branch you're sitting on. Because it cuts you off from the source of life and breath, God himself. So we're not just bad, we're dead. Spiritually dead, separated from God. Physically dead later, cessation of life. That's the bad news. But what if, what if there was someone who conquered death? What if there was someone who not only conquered death, but offered new life? What if there was someone who not only offered new spiritual life now, but offered us new physical life later? What if that were true? Wouldn't that be good news? Well, this is not a superficial what if, but the supreme reality of who Christ Jesus is. Jesus is supreme because he conquers death and offers new life to all those who turn from their sin and trust in Christ. Death could not hold him. Death could not contain him. Get this. Jesus was so full of life that he had to borrow our death. Jesus was so full of life that he had to borrow our death. That when we trust in him, we can take his life. Christian, rejoice in that truth this morning. Feast upon the one who willingly borrowed your sin and death that you might take up his life. Don't ever let that get old. The resurrection of Christ is the guarantee of the demonstration of what is and what is to come for those that are in Christ. We can be assured that because Jesus rose from the grave, we have new spiritual life. We are called to walk in newness of life. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Our hope of the future is bound up in the resurrection of the past. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 Peter 1.3 Jesus is the founder of new life. Spiritual life now, physical life later. Physical life that ushers us into the presence of God. If you turn from your sin and you trust in Christ alone. And so, friend, if you're here and you've been looking for life, You've been looking for satisfaction. Maybe you've turned to your job. Maybe you've turned to a spouse or a want-to-be spouse or relationship with another member. Maybe it's sex. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's school. Maybe it's success. I don't know what it is. But you're looking for life. Know that you're not going to find it in any of those things. Know that it's found in Christ alone. And so just like a conch shell held up to your ear when I have an empty ring of the ocean until it's returned to the water, you too will have the empty ring of death in your soul until you return to Christ. 
And Christ is inviting this morning to come to him and find life and satisfaction. And because there's an empty tomb on earth, there's an occupied throne in heaven. And the person on that throne has preeminence in all things. That's what the rest of verse 18 says. Why is Jesus the head of the church? Why is he the firstborn from the dead? That, so that, in order to, in everything, he might have the preeminence. Or, to say it another way, he might have the supremacy. And so Paul is not using the word firstborn here. And he uses it in verse 15. He's not using it to refer to physical terms or to a physical birth. It's not what he's saying. There are other religions that will teach that. It's wrong. Jesus was not physically born in eternity past. He's eternally God. So what does he mean by firstborn here? What Paul had in mind was the rights and privileges of a firstborn son, especially a son of a monarch, of a king. And so Jesus, or Paul is saying Jesus, the eternal son of the eternal God, is all supreme over everything. He inherits everything his father has. There are many references. Psalm 89, if you want to look at one, Psalm 89, David is called the firstborn son of God. Clearly, David was not firstborn of God. He's saying he's supreme inheritance over all things. And so there's a lot of Christianized, what I would call Christianized junk that is in the world around us. Perhaps one of the worst behind the Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt is Jesus is my co-pilot bumper sticker. If you have that, I'm sorry, but Jesus is not your co-pilot. And Jesus is not your homeboy. He's the all-supreme Lord and the all-sufficient Savior. He's not a homeboy or a co-pilot. Most people are okay with the importance of Jesus, just not his supremacy. How about you, friend? Are you okay with the supremacy of Christ in your life? At some level, right, you're here this morning. You give a nod to the importance of Christ. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't have come. But he's got to be more than important. He's got to be supreme. Because here's the truth. If Jesus is not valued above all, Jesus is not valued at all. If Jesus is not valued above all, Jesus is not truly valued at all. So that confronts us with a question. Where does Jesus rank in your life? If you had a DVD of your life from this past week, and we put it on the screen for everybody to enjoy, where would Jesus rank? Now, some of you are like, I have no idea how to answer that question. I'm not even sure what it looks like for Jesus to be supreme in my life. That's what some of you are probably thinking. Then some of, some, some of you over here are probably thinking, is he saying that I, like, I need to think about Jesus all the time, only I'll just sit down and read my Bible, that's all it means to be Jesus be supreme? No, that's not what I'm saying. That'd be a mistake. Not reading your Bible, that wouldn't be a mistake, but just thinking that Jesus is only supreme in like in religious things. Because here's the truth. Jesus is supreme in the momentous and the mundane, from the grocery shopping to the coffee drinking, from the parenting to the phone calls, from your personal work in your school to the corporate worship. Jesus is supreme in all things. 
And because I want to serve you this morning, I want to, I want to give you maybe a couple of practical ways just for you to examine the supremacy of, lo- of Christ in your life. So first, let me ask you to examine the supremacy of Christ in your life by evaluating the humility in your life. A life that is truly lived under the Christ the King is a life in pursuing humility. Because we understand who our King is and what our King has done, we're humble. Now, humility is not a de facto position that I have no gifts and I'm not good at anything. That's not what humility is. Humility is recognized anything, maybe something you're really, really good at, is a gift from God and should be used to worship Him. So can you identify specific ways in your life where you are killing pride and cultivating humility? Second, evaluate the supremacy of Jesus in your life by evaluating the gladness or the joy in your life. I like to ask people, that are Christians, that claim to be Christians. Are you glad you're a Christian? If I were to ask you that this morning, are you glad that you're a Christian? What if there was an area of your life that Jesus wanted to change? Would you be joyful and glad about that? Knowing that it's for your good? Evaluate the supremacy of Christ in your life by evaluating the joy in your life. Third, evaluate the supremacy of Christ in your life by evaluating the repentance in your life. See, repent us. Repentance reminds us that Christ is king and I am not. And so the Holy Spirit works in our lives to reveal our sin because he's kind to us. He wants to rip away our kingdom that is fleeting and fading, that we might live for Jesus' kingdom that is forever. And so repentance is a true way that we evaluate the supremacy of Christ in our life. So can you identify in this past week specific sins that you have repented of, not just to God, but to a brother or a sister? Maybe you're thinking of something right now. Perhaps you need to go home and confess to your spouse. Perhaps you need to go home and confess to your children. Perhaps you need to repent to a friend. Evaluate the supremacy of Christ in your life by evaluating the repentance in your life. And let me encourage you not to do this alone. Personal insight is the product of community. We need if I'm if I'm being prideful or there's sin in my life, there's chances I may not know it. If I'm blind, I can't see. I need somebody who can help me see. So go to a trusted friend and say, Can you help me? Do you do you see me pursuing humility? Do you am I am I a fun person to be? I'm like, am I glad? Are there sins in my life that you think I need to repent of? Invite the community of faith around you. The Christian faith is not you and Jesus. It's about a people of God worshiping the Son of God to the glory of God. It's a community. So yes, Jesus is the head of the church. He is the conqueror of death and the giver of new life. And course number three, Jesus is sufficient because he alone is God incarnate. Verse 19. For in him, Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. If you have your Bible open, or I think it might be on the screen, you can even flip over to 2.9. For in him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. 
Note that word fullness. It's full, complete. Jesus is not mostly God or partly God. He is fully God. There is nothing whatsoever of God that is not in Christ. So evidently some in Colossae were teaching that Christ was not enough to bring salvation and satisfaction. But Paul is telling them, hey, no, God's fullness is in Christ. What more do you need? What more do you want? God does not possess anything beyond Christ to give us. God does not possess anything beyond Christ to give us. We don't look past Christ to get something else. We don't look to the gifts, but we look to the giver. And he is far better. Psalm 1611 tells us that God in his presence is the path of life and the fullness of joy. And we get into God's presence through Christ who brings us there. He is the image of the invisible God. And look what the text says. It says, God was pleased to dwell among us. In the Old Testament, God manifested himself in a particular place, the tabernacle or the temple. Now, the fullness of God manifests himself in a particular person, Christ Jesus. And he's pleased to do so. Do you take pleasure in the same thing God takes pleasure in? Do you take pleasure in the same thing God takes pleasure in Jesus? Some might say they want God, they worship God, but they just want to cut Jesus out of the equation. That's just not possible. You can't delight in God and reject the things that God is pleased in. As one author says, to ignore Jesus is to snub God. You cannot have God while being indifferent to God's greatest delight. Do you delight more in the person of Jesus or the possessions you hope to get from him? Do you delight more in the person of Jesus or more in the possessions or the circumstances that you hope to get from him? Because it's Christ alone that's the one that's all sufficient. And this verse points us to another way of his sufficiency. It shows he's unique, being fully God and fully human. He is the one who can bring us back to God. Remember earlier I said that we are separated from God? So we need someone to bridge that gap between God and man, between heaven and earth? Listen to an old saint. Only man should make the payment for his sins, since it is man who has sinned. However, only God could make the necessary payment for he alone is perfect and infinite. Jesus Christ is therefore the only Savior, since he is the only person in whom the should and the could are united, being himself both God and man. Yes, Jesus Christ is the God-man, and because he is the God-man, he is the one who is qualified to reconcile all things back to himself. And that leads us to our fourth course. So verse 19 tells us there's nothing outside of God's fullness lacking in Christ. Verse 20 tells us there's nothing in the universe that's outside of God's reconciling power in Christ. Jesus is all sufficient, not just because he's God alone incarnate, but he alone reconciles all things. Jesus is all sufficient because he alone reconciles all things. Verse 20, through him, Jesus 
through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So through God, or through Jesus, God is reconciling all things. What does it mean to reconcile all things? Fortunately, Paul tells us to make peace. And peace is not just the uh, lack of conflict. Peace is not even I'm at peace with myself type of thing. But it's true peace is not just the absence of conflict, but the presence of flourishing. That's wholeness. That's fullness. It's when all things are back to the way they're supposed to be. And if Jesus needs to reconcile all things, what does that mean? All things are not at peace. Apart from Christ, all things are are broken. They're not at peace. They are not flourishing. Our world is broken and fractured. Injustice and oppression abound. What happened on Friday? A typhoon slammed into the Philippines, killing nearly 1,200 people. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Every day, almost 16,000 children die from hunger. That's one every five seconds. Dead. Dead. Not the way it's supposed to be. Tonight, in America alone, 25 million children will go to bed without their biological father in the home. That's enough to fill National Stadium every day for nearly two years. Not the way it's supposed to be. In America alone, there's a booming trade that sells women and young girls for sex. $28 billion in revenue. It's more than McDonald's. Not the way it's supposed to be. The picture is clear. The world is broken. The atheist claims that the world is bad. But by what standard do they say that? The naturalist and the humanist, they also complain of evil and suffering. But if we're the product of survival of the fittest, our only hope is that we can come out on top. But Christianity provides a unique framework to view the world. It provides an answer as to why things are not the way they're supposed to be, and it holds out that hope that we all have deep inside of us, that one day all things will be back the way they're supposed to be. See, the Bible is what, is what I'd say has a realistic optimism. It's real. It, it just, just read your Bible. It just describes the world we live in. But it holds out this optimism, the world that we all want that we hunger for is true. We all know it. We all feel it. We all long for something better. And here we have a promise in God's word that he will right all that is wrong. In his first coming, Jesus gave us glimpses of this, didn't he? The blind saw, the dead were raised, the lamed walked, the hungry were fed, the diseased were healed. Don't think of these as miracles necessarily. Think of them as glimpses into the kingdom that is to come. 
God is coming again and he will restore all things back to the way they're supposed to be. And how's he doing it? Making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus makes peace through the blood on the cross. Jesus understands our need for rescue so much that he not only willingly took on human flesh, he willingly gave his life up for us. He went from a throne in heaven to a cross on earth. On the cross, Jesus absorbed the fullness of God's wrath or the limitations of human suffering. The incarnation leads to the crucifixion, which leads to our reconciliation through Christ Jesus. God came to earth not to destroy, but to restore. God coming to man that man might come to God. So he who made all things takes on the limitations of a created thing. The Word became flesh. God became human. The invisible became visible. The untouchable became touchable. The unlimited became limited. The unbreakable became fragile. The Almighty became weak. The loved became the hated. From fame to obscurity, inexpressible joy to unimaginable grief. From ruler to being ruled. From power to weakness. From the heights of supremacy to the depths of human suffering. making peace by the blood of the cross, offering hope through an empty tomb. God has done everything necessary at the cost of his eternal son to bring you fullness, to bring you completeness, to bring you joy, to bring you satisfaction because it's found not in the false promises of the world. Don't suck on those. Come to Christ In him is fullness. He ushers you into the presence of God. And so, friend, if your salvation does not have Christ at the center, it's not Jesus plus something. Jesus plus anything ruins everything. It's Jesus and Jesus alone that brings us to God, that we might have completeness and we might have peace and we might have life the way it's supposed to be, reconciled back to God himself. That's why, where does verse 20 say? Reconcile us to himself. This is the good news of the gospel. The good news, the ultimate decisive final news is not that your sins are forgiven. The ultimate good news is not that you get to go to heaven. The ultimate final decisive good news is not that you escape hell. The ultimate good news is you get God. God is the good news. Go to God himself through Christ God is not going to make all things new. He's not going to make new things. He's going to make all things new. But we can enjoy the kingdom of the all-supreme Lord and the all-sufficient Savior. It's time for dessert. We spent the past, I don't know, 40, 45 minutes taking this text and breaking it up into bite-sized bites but I want to feed you dessert the way I like to eat dessert, and that is one big spoonful at a time. And so let me encourage you just to sit back for a moment as I read the truths in this passage again and just delight in what we have in Christ. Just let this truth wash over you and feed your soul. Feast upon the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ 
that we find in these verses. Verse 14, in Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Verse 15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the firstborn, the ruler over all creation. All things were created by Jesus. All things were created through Jesus. All things were created for Jesus. Jesus is before all things. Jesus holds together all things. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. Jesus is the ruler of new creation. In Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus reconciles all things back to himself. Jesus makes peace by the blood of the cross. Jesus is king. The all-supreme Lord is the all-sufficient Savior. If you ever feel hungry for the glory of God, go here. Go here and meditate and memorize on this passage and ask God to fill you with the excellencies of Christ Jesus. After all, he has nothing else to give us. We have it all in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise this morning that you have given us all that we need in Christ and that we come to him through repentance and faith. Father, feed us, help us feed upon your truth. May your spirit be real and active upon all things. Give us life in Christ, we pray. Amen.